Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Joining us today is retired United States Navy Admiral Mike Rogers, the former director of the National Security Agency and the commander of U.S. Cyber Command. He is now a cyber consultant who also serves as the chairman of the advisory board of cybersecurity firm Clarity. Uh, sir, it's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program, and it's been entirely too long. Uh, it's always great to get a chance to spend some time with you, my friend. Uh, in, indeed, an, an absolute pleasure. And, but before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Uh, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Fortress Information Security, as I said, sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage, and our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting. Uh, and trade show was sponsored by Safran and Leonardo DRS. Uh, Mike, uh, great, as I said, to have you back on the program. Uh, we now have the national security strategy out. The national defense strategy was unveiled uh, last week. Uh, from your perspective, what were the messages you liked and what are the messages that maybe you didn't like or didn't like as much, let me put it diplomatically, uh, when yeah. it comes to from a cyber and intelligence perspective? First, if you look at the national security strategy, 48 page document, the positive I thought cyber is specifically addressed. Now it's a single paragraph. There's nothing new. As I read the national security strategy, I really didn't see anything there that I thought, ah, it's a fundamental shift in uh, the historic way we've tended to view cyber from a national security strategy. But I didn't really see any changes, so to speak. I will right. say what surprised me was the document also, it acknowledges that as competition increases in the world that we're living in now, that there are narrower or the avenues to cooperate are narrowing. The document identifies about six areas for cooperation. I was surprised. So climate, um, transnational crime, et cetera. I was surprised the document did not identify cybersecurity as an area for cooperation. I, I just thought, wow, cybersecurity is an issue that literally every nation in the world, it doesn't matter how large, how small, how wealthy, how populous, what particular area of the world your country is located, right. we're all going to deal with this. I was really surprised that it didn't call out, you know, cybersecurity as a potential avenue for cooperation. It doesn't I, mean we won't cooperate, but I was surprised we didn't, you know, expressly call it out, so to speak. Um, and, and let me uh, just pull on that uh, for a second, and then we can get to the NDS and any other uh, mechanics that you want to get to. I mean, you've said this uh, before. Uh, that it is both important to uh, defend and to be offensive when you need to be offensive, but at the same time, cooperate when you have to cooperate. How, what was the right way to have couched and framed that, right? Because in, on the one hand, you're either a, a, a dragon slayer, uh, right, or a, or a Russian slayer, or uh, you know, you're, you're a, a panda, uh, or you're coddling the Russians, right? And, and there's this bifurcation, and then people are trying to out-tough each other. I mean, ultimately, what's the right balance to have on this with both two nation states or, or, and, and more that are adversarial, while at the same time actually working together with them on, on stuff that we should and could be working together with them on, as you said, in a global commons? Right. So I thought the, the paragraph, I think it's on like page 38 out of the 48 pages, the paragraph in the document specifically highlights cybersecurity, I thought was well done. What I would have tried to do, and I don't mean this 
as a criticism and having worked on these in my own time in uniform, I, I, I know it's hard to get consensus across the government. What I would have tried to do is make an argument that ties that paragraph where it talks about our approach to cyber, how we'll react to activities directed against the United States. I would have tried to tie that to the fact that we also believe cyber offers great opportunity for cooperation, that cyber is an element of the document, for example, talks about three pillars broadly, investing in the United States, modernizing and building. And it talks about building coalition, modernizing the military and the investment part is about the, the tools of American power and influence. I would have tried to more explicitly tie cyber as an element of all three of those. And the fact that cyber offers us great opportunity, as challenging as it is, it also offers us great opportunity. And it's a way to try to bring multiple nations together and build these alliances that are a real strength for the United States. And, and do you think that you would be able to more effectively work with Russians and Chinese, for example, on this kind of stuff, while at the same time, uh, right, I mean, the situation among us three is getting sportier. Yeah, the um, Russians are a little challenging in that regard, but, um, and China's not easy because it, it, it is a challenge to engage in cyber defense activities with nations that you know are attempting to penetrate your networks regularly. But on the other hand, look, we, the United States acknowledges, look, we understand that cyber is a tool of espionage and statecraft, that nations will use it to attempt to gain advantage. We do that. Our allies do that. Our differences was in other areas about cyber. So I like the idea that even with all the cyber activity, not so much Russia, but if you look at others, there's still potential areas of cooperation here. Um, I and, and on the NDS, were there any elements of the NDS that jumped out at you as being particularly strong or not strong? Well, I, the, the way I would phrase it was, I didn't think it was all that different, if you will. The, the one area that I would highlight, it's already been in existence for several years now, but it really pounds the, 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 the message of integrated deterrence which I, I do like, and cyber is a potential element of that. And I, I do like that, and the document very much calls it out. But otherwise, if I'm honest, and, and this is no in no way disrespectful or in any way to castigate the, the Department of Defense and the effort to put into creating the strategy, there's not much new there to me. Right. Um, you know, you, you mentioned Russia, and I want to get to uh, the nuclear word uh, and something that you and I have discussed before. Uh, about cyber and nuclear deterrent, uh, and it's a question I've asked many other thoughtful folks as well. Let me just ask you about Russia, right? There, there was an expectation that that dog was going to bark. Um, there are things that we are doing to defend ourselves, just like we are daily, right? Humpty Dumpty is not falling off that wall by itself. We're helping the Ukrainians push Humpty Dumpty off the wall, right? Uh, which, which rightfully uh, irritates uh, our Russian friends. Um, but, you know, there were airport hacks, right, with, you know, websites and but it's a dog that sort of hasn't barked. Um, what's your sense on where we are on that? I know that I keep asking you this question every time no, no. you come on and I ask many others. Is this a so, dog that's going to bark? Is he saving it in reserve to use it in some other capacity? Is he just not using it and we're deterring him? 
So he's using it very aggressively in Ukraine. But Ukraine has shifted to a very different cyber strategy and cyber resilience model that is proving to be very effective. And I hope as this conflict hopefully ends that the United States and others take a look at how was Ukraine able to create such cyber resilience, was able to ensure the continued operation of its facilities, its infrastructure, ensuring its data flow and its connectivity. How was it able to do that? I hope we spend some time because I think there's some real lessons there. With respect to outside Ukraine, if I step back, I would say right now Putin has decided that it is in his best interest not to escalate this conflict, either by expanding it to other domains like cyber or space, by escalating it in terms of intensity. You look at the range of weapons that they could be using that they aren't, and I'm not trying to minimize in any way the harm and the damage that Ukraine as a nation and its citizens on a really human level are having to deal with. But this could be much worse. I, I think what so far his calculation is, it's not in my best interest to escalate right now. And I believe he thinks that time favors him. One area where I'd say the West has a little wrong, in the West, we tend to focus on battlefield performance as the ultimate measure of where this conflict is going to go. And I would argue, I don't think Putin fixates on how, much, how many kilometers of territory he controls. My view is he feels he has to have enough, but his view is it's less important about exactly how much I control and much more important that I show the strength and the commitment and my willingness to, to sustain this kind of pain over time. And that ultimately, if you're Putin, I believe his view is time favors him. Now, three, four months from now, we get through the winter cycle energy didn't have the impact. We didn't see the level of economic disruption in the West that Pat Putin perhaps hopes for. We may see a different calculation. Hey, maybe I need to increase the pressure. Maybe things like cyber, which have some measure of plausible deniability, maybe they become very attractive tools, but I don't think we're there yet. But I remind um, people, you gotta look at this over time. Um, you mentioned briefly sort of like lessons. What are some emerging lessons uh, that you've drawn uh, over so, the past couple of months? Number one, the importance of the human dimension. Ukraine has shown resilience at an incredibly human level, not just organizationally, not just from a technological standpoint. When it comes to motivated men and women who just have said, look, we're going we're gonna to have to deal with damage. We're going to have to deal with some measure of loss of capability, but that's not going to stop us from doing what we need to do. And it's not going to grind our society to a halt. I think that's a very powerful lesson for the United States and other nations, that one aspect of resilience is how as a society and as individuals at a human level, we deal with the challenges that are out there. The second thing that I would think is really powerful is the Ukrainian approach wasn't based on some new technology. Look, right. Starlink's almost a decade old. You look at the handheld capabilities of these digital devices we use, they've been around for years. Rather than focusing on some new technology or sets of technology that was going to fundamentally change the game, they decided the way to create greater resilience was to harness a broader set of partners, not just government, not just the private sector in Ukraine, but private citizens, both in Ukraine and elsewhere, and perhaps most significantly, 
a broader set of global capabilities resident in the private sector, particularly in IT and cybersecurity firms, and how we make them partners, if you will, in ensuring our resilience in the face of this Russian activity. That is an incredibly powerful model to me where I go, we should look at how we can implement something similar in the United States. Um, I want to uh, take br briefly talk about um, nuclear weapons, Russia and cyber. Another question that uh, we've discussed. So we're sticking with a light topic, nuclear weapons. Okay, we're, we're sticking with all the light topics uh, today. I heard Chaz Richard, uh, Admiral Richard, the uh, Stratcom uh, commander at the Naval Submarine League's uh, event, which is always a highlight of the calendar. Uh, to hear from a very, very important community that does not spend as much time talking, even though Admiral uh, John Greenert, the former chief of Naval Operations, um, and who was the chairman of the Submarine League, did encourage folks to talk more, right, judiciously, but talk more uh, to make a better case for the importance of undersea capabilities. Um, the, the, you know, it looks like Putin did back off from some of the nuclear saber rattling he was doing. There was, you know, a lot of discussion about all the elements that played into that, including the Chinese telling them, hey, you're not really going to get anywhere uh, with that. But from your standpoint, what's, you know, is, is, is there, you know, because the administration has sort of hinted, we have a vast way of responding to this. And, and full disclosure, right, the administration does point out the United States does not have, you know, Ukraine does not fall under the nuclear umbrella. So when people talk about deterrence, Deterrence is working with the Russians and is likely to work with the Chinese because they're declared at, you know, they're part of the schema. Ukraine, you know, Russia using a tactical nuclear weapon against Ukraine. I'm not sure what agreement that uh, technically uh, falls under. Um, but more broadly, the administration says, look, the United States does not have to respond in kind. There's conventional capabilities we have in cyber. Is this one of those instances where cyber in this kind of a dialogue does serve as an effective deterrent or not really? Well, number one, it's hard to prove a negative. Mm. The, the fact yeah. is, for whatever reason, the Russians have chosen to date at least not to escalate this into other domains, cyber and space, in a way that they clearly have the capability and that in the past, at times, they have shown a willingness to do. Now, it's a million dollar question as to why that is the case. Um, with respect to this latest round of Putin's comments about, you know, I'm prepared to use the full spectrum of capability, the clear inference being, A, and that includes nukes, and then his stepping away from that at the end of last week, where he said, that wasn't what I was referring to, we would not use nuclear weapons. Clearly, in that particular ceremony, in that particular scenario, I am aware that multiple nations reached out to him to include our own. It was very direct about, look, if you go down that road and you use nuclear weapons, the response from us, while it may not necessarily be in kind, i.e. we wouldn't necessarily default to using a nuke against you, the one thing we want you to understand is the response would be significant, dramatic, and immediate, and incredibly painful for you. You don't want to go down this road. I think that message for right now, right. for a variety of reasons, resonated. But the thing you got to remember with Putin and the Russians is <laughs> he continually reassesses and he's very flexible historically in his ability to, to do things that he had rejected previously. We always need to be mindful of that. Well, I mean, and from his perspective, right, Mike, he is striking uh, Ukrainian civilian uh, water power, uh, degrading it such that it will become a very grim a winter, right? I mean, he hasn't done so 
uh, until relatively recently. And if he degrades that capability enough, the whole design is aimed to turn the Ukrainian people against their government, have them sue for some kind of peace. Okay, the Russians keep Crimea, they keep, uh, you know, and, and kind of freeze the line, right? So from his standpoint, I may actually be setting the conditions for longer term success here, um, you know, de depending on how the winner goes. So, right. I think um, he has decided, look, I have other tools available to me to increase the pressure. And the most important pressure that I can increase right now is directly with respect to Ukraine. The one thing I haven't seen in the kinetic activity that surprises me a little bit, he's generally gone after power, water, some transportation and distribution. I would be looking for him to start going after energy storage and energy distribution, particularly as we move into the winter. I would look for him to expand this kinetic activity in those areas. Let me shift gears to our uh, Chinese friends. Obviously, they had their big party Congress, but there was messaging across virtually every uh, element of the Chinese power spectrum, right? Um, from your standpoint, what did you pick up from uh, a cyber intel? You know, what were the things that jumped out at you as being sort of interesting elements of this cyber and otherwise? First, he doubled down on almost every major existing program. He didn't use this as an opportunity to signal a pivot. He didn't use this as an opportunity to say, you know, in my 10 years in these three leadership positions, head of the state, head of the party, head of the military, I've used this 10 years and we're gonna refine or shift focus. He could have done that, for example, I think some people are hoping he might do that with COVID. So my number one takeaway is, he not only indicate, didn't indicate a desire to pivot in any major way, he was explicit about, we are doubling down. And it didn't matter for his national security, economics, COVID, the relationship with Russia. He literally has indicated, we got it right and we're doubling down. My second takeaway was the primacy of national security in his remarks in particular. Historically, the party and the Congress has tended to focus on the economic side more than the national security side. And it was the inverse this time. For the first time that I can remember, he kept trumpeting this idea of the importance of national security. And even if it means that we might have some measure of economic pain to achieve this national security um, kind of end states that he keeps talking about, he communicated, that's clearly what we're going to do. So I'm a little less fixated on I got to achieve X GDP and much more on while I want to achieve high levels of GDP, it's about ensuring the, the, the security and the interests of China that are the most important to me. That was my second takeaway. My third takeaway is if you look at who he put on the Politburo Standing Committee, I'm struck by from a Western perspective, not a single woman. Secondly, of the seven members, only two are under age 65. One, uh, I think one is 60 and the other is 62. So he clearly has made it very clear there is no younger alternative to me within the structure right now that's in a position of power. He literally has neutered all of that and very much sent the message I, I, I'm not only the individual in power, but I've made sure you have no real alternatives right now. Um, it'll be interesting. And then probably lastly, he continues 
you haven't seen this with my and uh, since Mao in many ways, almost this this cult of personality about she as an individual, about Xi's unique role, not just in the party, but in Chinese society and Xi's unique ability to lead China to its rightful place in the world around us. You gotta go back to Mao to find a Chinese leader who so pushed this idea about the cult of personality. Let me ask you about the Biden administration's uh, technology embargoes, right? I mean, these originated during the Trump administration. Indeed, some of them uh, did date back uh, to the to the Obama administration, where they were sort of the early steps of sort of framing what it is and where they should be in towers and uh, and all of that. I know that you participated in those debates and discussions mm-hmm. uh, back then. Um, how significant are the things that the administration is doing? to cut the flow of chip making technology of software and of hardware to the Chinese, you know, and we also did the chips act, right? So at the one time right. we're severing theirs while trying to advance ours, but there's also an understanding that it's going to take many years before we have that domestic capability uh, and have that surety of the supply chain. You know, how effective are the actions the administration is taking to, to stymie, whether it's Chinese artificial intelligence capabilities, cyber capabilities, or, or national security ones? So first, let me step back and put this in a little context. So when President Trump became the president, and I worked for him, and boy, discussed this with him at times as part of the national security team, he felt strongly that China needed to be confronted, that the best vehicle to do that was to isolate China. And he identified technology as the area where he thought they had both the greatest dependence on us and we had the strongest advantage. And within technology, he really locked on to 5G and then Huawei and ZTE is the embodiment of this is what we need to overcome. This is where, where China's developed strength that we need to negate. In addition, he implements a series of trade and tariff policies designed to create greater pain for China, hoping that it will lead them to change their behavior. Fast forward four years later, President Biden comes to power now almost two years ago. And President Biden's view is he talks broadly about the importance of an international approach, about a multilateral view of the world around us and how important the ability to coalesce a broader set of nations around common objectives, how key that should be to our strategy. But he also says, look, I am assessing. I believe we need to confront China, but I believe I need to assess what's the best way to do that. While I am doing that assessment, I will elect to to retain in place the major trade and tariff policy restrictions that my predecessor put in place. It's now almost two years later, and what President Biden has clearly signaled in the last couple months through the CHIPS Act and a few other things is he is doubling down on the idea that we need to confront China. He is doubling down on the idea that technology is one of the primary areas of strength for us and also an area where we need to negate, if you will, Chinese capabilities in some areas and aspects of technology. He has gone further by saying, and I'm going to create a legal framework that restricts the ability of China to broadly access some of this. So just this isn't just about Huawei and ZTE now. It's about a much broader set of Chinese companies, the entire Chinese economy ability to access some of this U.S capability. 
And at the same time, he's also clearly argued part of his, President Biden's vision is, and I need to ensure that I have a significant domestic capability in these areas, that I've got to build alternatives to Chinese-centered supply chains for key technologies, that there's got to be a better way. Now, he also, he, President Biden, has also argued, and we want to do this, not alone, but with a broader set of nations. So the EU is looking at what they're Positions should be vis-a-vis China. They clearly are in a different place than than the EU was two years ago. This is also where the Russia-Ukraine conflict is interesting because the United States and others, for example, have pointed out to Europe in general, Germany specifically, look at the choices, for example, that you made in energy. By tying yourselves so closely to Russia from an energy perspective, you really limited your strategic flexibility and you put yourself in a position of vulnerability. Hey, learn that lesson and ask yourself, do you want to do the same with respect to China? We wouldn't necessarily have had that same visible kind of lesson absent the Ukraine situation. So it is interesting how the United States and others are urging, learn the lessons of the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the choices you made vis-a-vis Russia and don't repeat them with respect to China. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I think the Chinese commitment coming out of the Congress to, hey, we are doubling down. And in fact, national security becomes even more important. We're going to directly confront you. We're at a really interesting time. China has now very visibly confirmed they intend to be more aggressive and confront the West. Coming out of the midterms elections, and you look at what the Biden team has talked about in the last several months, the U.S. clearly has said, we're in a position where we are committed to increased, um, if you will, confrontation with China. Right. And in fact, the national security, for example, talks about, we acknowledge that in this competition we're having, there's going to be more stress. One of the implications of that stress is we're now going to have fewer error areas of cooperation. So our, our strategy acknowledges it and, and also acknowledges hey, that's acceptable to us. We need to confront China. And if it means we have some measure of pain, a reduced area set of cooperation, hey, in the long term, that's in in our best interest. So the next few years are really going to be interesting because everything points to more friction and greater confrontation, not less. Um, we're going to go into a little bit of a lightning round because we've got uh, a little bit less than uh, five minutes. And I wanted to ask you uh, about um, the administration's policy on software and hardware bills of uh, origin and materials. Obviously, a very aggressive push, uh, right? And, and as well, some news stories, right? That, you know, even with our technology bans, the Chinese still get an overwhelming amount of commercial hardware and software from us that go into their weapon systems, right? I mean, so that's another issue we've got to tackle. Uh, obviously. But on the S-bomb and on the H-bomb side, Mike, are we on the right track? I mean, is this something that's going to have that meaningful impact in terms of uh, addressing some of the hardware and software uh, cyber vulnerabilities we have as a nation and as well across our um, weapon systems? So we're on the right track because it highlights the importance of truly understanding the nature and the, the components and the construct of our supply chains, whether they be software, hardware, firmware that that's an area of weakness for us, that we traditionally haven't paid much attention to that. And you've watched nations look at the US components that we're finding in Russian weapon systems that we thought we had precluded from being able to get there. We gotta spend a lot more attention to this issue.
Let me uh, take you uh, briefly to the issue of election security, because it looks like there are midterm elections uh, next week. Um, Jen Easterly uh, at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency uh, has, you know, plays obviously a prominent role in America's uh, electoral security, both on the voting machine side, but also addressing uh, disinformation. You did the same thing when you were at NSA, right, and, and Cyber Command in terms of physical uh, security of the uh, electoral ecosystem but then fighting uh, disinformation and misinformation. And ultimately the challenge there is as, as long as you have political leaders who are propagating falsehoods, I don't really know how you combat that. But from your, from, from your perspective, um, how are we doing in at least trying to safeguard that which we can and the role of CISA and other organizations in combating misinformation and disinformation? So I think there's a, there's a high level of focus on cybersecurity associated with ensuring that from a cyber perspective, the election process is not tampered with, altered, or in any way changed. I feel very good about what the government's doing. I feel very good about our ability at the end of the process. And we'll have to work our way through that process because we're still a week away. But I feel very good about the level of attention, the level of effort, and that there's a high probability when the election is done, we're gonna be able to say with high confidence from a cybersecurity perspective, there was no external manipulation, access, et cetera. With respect to the, the questions of disinformation, that is much harder. To your point, I think focusing our time, attention, prioritization, resources on attempting to stop it is, is going to be really difficult. I, I wonder at times, is there a greater return on focusing on how we deal with it rather than focusing on, well, can we stop this from happening in the first place? I just think in a democratic society, this becomes the, the idea of stopping it becomes really difficult. And so, so, so how do you, so how do you deal with it then? Right. I mean, if, if you have people propagating falsehoods that have something like 90% of one of America's great political parties, believing the last election was stolen, which we know was patently untrue. Um, you know, how do, how do you deal with that? Because as long as you keep winning, why would you change your song? Right. So my comment would be, we probably got a low probability of changing the minds of a lot of people who feel firmly that as you've articulated, well, you know, we think the system is rigged. Rather, my attitude is you can believe what you want. That is your right as a, as a citizen. What you cannot do is then use that as justification for acts of violence, intimidation, or as a rationale for taking the law into your own hands. Hey, to me, that is totally unacceptable. You've crossed the line and we will deal strongly with that. My view is focus a little bit more on those who want to use that as justification for a series of activities rather than, boy, we're going to stop you from believing. I just think we got a low probability of stopping people from believing some things that are patently false. And next week, uh, we're going to have uh, Suzanne Spaulding of the Center for Strategic Great. and International Studies join us uh, to talk a little bit about after action and how we do that, because obviously she's one of the nation's leading thinkers. Uh, you know, was the CISA before there was a CISA mm -hmm. uh, and has been talking about the importance of civics education, which unfortunately has fallen by the wayside over the last couple of decades. 30 seconds, Mike. Um, should CISA be an independent agency? We've heard from Chris Krebs, Jenny Easterly's uh, predecessor at CISA, uh, and the first guy to hold the job as CISA uh, during the Trump administration. Should it be an independent agency? Is anything gained through doing that? 
So I always had two concerns that I thought we had to address. Number one, Sis's ability to rapidly get to the senior most leadership. I used to kid Chris and his predecessor, how many levels, how many layers do you have to get through, go through to get to your cabinet secretary? I said, I have zero. As the director of NSA and the commander of Cyber Command, I go directly to my secretary if I have an issue. And I also have the authority that was granted to me by the secretary. I can go to the White House if it's an issue I think they really need to be aware of, even though I got to make sure I keep my chain of command informed. In CISA, under the construct, they don't have anything similar. I thought that really slowed them down. Then the second thing I always thought was, are they appropriately resourced to do the mission that we've given them? I, I thought the command and control piece was a little less important and much more about there's, there's ways without making them independent to ensure they have the level of access they need and do they have the resources they need. I, I thought those were a little bit more important than are they independent or not, if that makes sense. It does make sense. Mike, thanks so very much. Uh, unfortunately, we're out of time. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it always. Look forward to having you back on again uh, soon uh, and hope you and yours uh, keep well. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great day.